I know Father's Day can be a little complicated. Some of us had great fathers, some of us had terrible fathers, but ultimately, Scripture refers to God as our Father. And so, um, I hope that your experience with God is that He has been a benevolent Father to you. And for those of you who had great dads, um, you know, what a blessing. For those of you who didn't have great dads, um, you're always one generation away from breaking generational curses in your, in your family. So be a great dad or encourage a great dad, right? So it's one of those things that um, we want to celebrate because we have a lot of dads who take their role seriously and are great. And there are dads that encourage me to be even better than, you know, like I feel like I am sometimes capable of. So um, happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads and um, be encouraged this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us before we get into the word, just because I've had respiratory issues all week, and I'm just praying that I'm able to get through this without hacking into the mic or, uh, you know, having issues. So, um, and also that God would use this uh, this time in the word uh, to change us. So would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, would you just um, use your word again in our lives, teach us something fresh today? Uh, Would you... Uh, allow this to go deep into who we are and would it change the way that we live. Uh, not just learn a new thing, but actually be able to do a new thing, to be able to live a new thing, um, to be able to show the world a new thing. And uh, we thank you for your example to us um, as believers. God, would we just continue to live up to the example that you've called us to live up to. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in John chapter 9 and we are picking up the story uh, from last week. We did the first 12 verses of John chapter 9, and it's uh, Jesus coming in contact with a blind man. And we see a very complicated first 12 verses because, again, we talked about the fact that the disciples had kind of picked this guy at random and said, Jesus, tell us about the connection between sin and suffering. Is this man suffering because of his sin or his parents' sin? And that wasn't the right question. Jesus decided to use this as a Example as a good way to teach them the, the connection between sin and suffering. And we ended up talking about the idea that sin and suffering are connected, but it's, um, it's the type of sin that's affected our world that creates these moments uh, in, in people's lives. And we talked about the idea that Jesus uses and leverages these moments in our lives, um, even when we suffer, that there's ways that God uses that to bless us, bless others, build his kingdom. Um, and so the situation kind of turns a little when Jesus decides he's going to heal the man. The man doesn't really ask for questions to be uh, asked about him. He doesn't really ask for Jesus to intervene. He's kind of a bystander. It's almost, again, like a a group of doctors who walk into a room and start talking about a patient with them sitting right there, but the patient didn't ask for that, doesn't really care what they have to say, and they're just sort of talking right over them. It was kind of a rude moment, and uh, Jesus decides to heal the man. So he takes some of his saliva in fact, the word, actually, I didn't tell you this last week, but translates to spittle, if you're trying to figure out what it looked like. And he needs some mud, and then he places it on the man's eyes. And you would think, okay, it's enough that they were talking about him, like, right over him. And then secondly, it's enough that you would, like, just spread mud on his face. But then he tells the man, hey, uh, you know, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and, and you'll be healed. And then it says the man went and he washed and he came back seeing. So now this creates kind of a predicament. And the question we were asking, or we should be asking, is why did Jesus decide to make mud and put it on the man's face? Because if I were teaching like a class on how do we pray for healing, or how do we use the Holy Spirit, right, and tap into the Holy Spirit to pray for healing for people, 
I would not tell you that this is like a follow this formula kind of situation, right? If you go over to someone's house and you're going to pray for healing for them and you just bring dirt with you and you just start creating mud and you just start slathering it on the person, this is, that's not the point of what we're talking about here. So, so many times we read the Bible and we think it's prescriptive when it's being descriptive, okay? So in this case, there's a reason why Jesus did use this mud and it was to pick a fight, okay? So today we're going to look at the second half of the sort of the fallout of this miracle. And the key piece of what's going to kind of come into play here is that this miracle has happened on the Sabbath. So Jesus has done some things on the Sabbath that he's not allowed to do, and he did those things on purpose to kind of pick a fight with the Pharisees. Hold on. <coughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm going to struggle through today. We're going to get there, though. So will you read with me um, chapter 9, verse 13 in John is where we begin. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. So now he's not, no longer blind. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. I feel like that's a kid's song. I'm pretty sure somewhere along the way in vacation Bible school, there's some people nodding at me. I feel like I remember this one. Um, and so uh, they bring him now to the Pharisees. Now, in that day, when you had a miracle happen, you would actually go to somebody who was your spiritual elder, and you would have them verify the miracle. So this isn't a weird thing. This is a, a common thing. When a miracle happens, you go to the leaders, and you kind of give God the credit for what has happened, and you start to share the story. This is a testimony. It's a chance to share the story of what has happened. Verse 14. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Now, it's unclear how many Sabbath laws Jesus broke to do this. First of all, you're not allowed to need anything. Okay, the, To put you into the perspective of how ridiculous the Sabbath laws had gotten, Sabbath just means rest. The Jews spent a day, a 24-hour cycle, resting. They were not allowed to do specific things. They couldn't travel a certain distance. They couldn't pick up certain things. They couldn't anything over a certain amount of weight. They couldn't, um, you know, they couldn't do any work. And needing was actually one of the things that was very forbidden. You couldn't make bread. You couldn't knead, K-N-E-A-D, bread on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to. You had to like set your family up the day before, and you had to survive through the Sabbath without making any bread, without kneading anything. Jesus kneading mud violated Sabbath laws. I know it seems ridiculous. At the time, they were having arguments about Sabbath and how crazy they needed to be. And one of the arguments they were having, as I was doing research this week, I, that I could not believe, is, I mean, honest truth, they were talking about if your house is on fire on the Sabbath and you're not allowed to carry anything out of your house, can you do anything or do you just have to watch everything that you own burn? Okay, that was one of the prompts. And what they, they, they came to a realization that if you wanted to, you could go into your house and you could put on garments and then you could come out of your house and you could take off garments and then go back into your house and put more garments on and come out of your house and take more garments off. But you weren't allowed to pick anything up, anything heavy, any, actually, really anything. You weren't allowed to carry anything out of your house. You had to basically watch it burn. This is how ridiculous the Sabbath laws had gotten. They were so uh, careful not to break the Sabbath laws that they were missing the whole entire point of what they were doing. The point was not to spend all this time thinking about whether or not you were being obedient to what God was calling you to. It was to spend time resting. It wasn't for you to like work so much harder to get to the place where you could absolutely do nothing on the Sabbath, Right? It was the idea that on the Sabbath, you were focused on worshiping God and resting. And they had lost, really, the idea of what this was all about. It was just rules on top of rules, on top of rules, on top of rules. It was useless, worthless religion. 
I think still sometimes people are very turned off by useless, worthless religion. There's lots of rules, lots of things that we add on to the gospel, that we add on to Jesus, that we add on to the Bible, and these things weren't meant to be there. We're just creating boundaries where they don't need to be. The idea is to figure out why God told us to do certain things and to honor the spirit of what he's called us to. You ask, well, how should I celebrate Sabbath? How should I rest? Well, we did a whole sermon series on it earlier in the year and really talked about what it means to the Sabbath. And I think it would be a really good thing for everyone in our church to really grab hold of because that rhythm is what God has called us to as believers. It's good for us to be spending time resting on a regular basis. And I think sometimes we just go so stinking hard. This is one of those weeks where we went too hard probably. My family. We had basketball camp and kids club and we had stuff going on at Marty's work and we had, I mean, it just felt like every single moment of every day this week in our family was full, right? I don't know if anybody else gets that way or feels that way, but it's, it's sometimes too much and you have to stop and you have to spend time Sabbathing. Well, the way this was happening in this time frame, you weren't allowed to need. Jesus wasn't allowed to heal anyone who wasn't on the verge of death. If it wasn't a life or death situation, he was not allowed to heal anybody. So him healing a blind person, what an amazing, miraculous moment, he was not allowed to do because the Sabbath would keep him from actually doing that work. I mean, come on, right? Um, and so Jesus spent many times sort of talking through this with people and teaching them on it and understanding what it was all about. And he breaks these rules on purpose to start kind of a fight with the Pharisees and to teach his disciples and everyone else who's listening even more about what is happening. All right, so we'll go back to our scripture here. I'm not exactly sure where we were, probably 15. <coughs> Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were, they were divided. Right? So there's a conversation that immediately begins. Instead of praising God for the miracle that they've just all seen, they're incredibly skeptical of it because it involves Jesus. They've already decided what they need to decide about Jesus, and they've already come with the skeptic's viewpoint on what Jesus is doing. Immediately, no matter what Jesus was involved in, they were going to be looking at it with a skeptical eye and trying to figure out what the angle was because they felt like Jesus was there to create um, some sort of problem to overthrow Rome, to put them into a bad position, and to like give them, I don't know, to, to say like they were kind of gun-shy because this had happened before. There had been people that had come, they'd whipped crowds into frenzies, they had said, I'm the Messiah, they had claimed to be the Messiah, and then it hadn't worked out, and Israel had gotten crushed by Rome, and Rome had come to the leaders of Israel and said, don't do this again. So they were doing a lot, the Pharisees, if I'm going to give them some credit in this situation, they were trying to keep another insurrection from happening so that they didn't get Rome's foot on their neck. Okay? But because they came with such a skeptical idea of what was going on, they couldn't see this miracle and understand what God was doing and respond to it in a way that was healthy. But there were some people, and we talked about, um, you know, there were some Pharisees that were faithful that end up being believers by the end of the story. Some people were asking, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Some people said, absolutely not. It has something to do with Jesus. We're out. And other people were like, hey, but are you guys paying attention? Like, this guy was blind. Like, we all knew Todd. He sat there every day. And now he can see. 
Like, we have to step back and say, what's going on with that? And what we don't always pick up is that they were waiting for certain signs. Um, so Jesus, when he started his ministry, he comes back from the desert after being tempted by, the, by Satan. And he walks right into his hometown, into a, a service in the synagogue. And he stands up and he reads from the scroll. And he announces his ministry by quoting Isaiah 61. I'm going to read this to you. It's not on my slides, Russ, so uh, I'll just read it. So this is what it says in Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in power of the Spirit. By the way, you always come back from being in the desert and spending time with the Lord in isolation and solitude in power. You come back in power. If you feel like you haven't had a relationship with God lately or he's not been a powerful force in your life, then go get away. Go spend some time in solitude with the Lord because you come back in power. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News had spread about him through the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, where he, as was his custom. By the way, Jesus goes to church. Those of you guys who have trouble going to church every week, Jesus, his custom was to go to church every weekend. Probably was there on time. Anybody who felt uncomfortable, that's your fault. That's not, I had nothing to do with that. So Jesus' custom is to go to the synagogue every Sunday. He stood up to read, and the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And this is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So that's one thing they're looking for, someone who would be proclaiming good news to the poor. Check. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and, he is, and, to, and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord, <coughs> the Lord's favor. I am really sorry. I need like a mute button here, buddy. Um, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. They were waiting for these signs. Jesus, by the way, after he reads this, everyone's really confused. And he stands up and he kind of drops the mic and he's like, and in me saying this today, it is, it, it's begun basically is what he says to them. And they all get mad at him. They're like, what are you talking about? Aren't you like the kid who grew up right around the corner? And he says, yeah, in your hometown, no one ever gives you any respect. Um, and then Jesus leaves and starts his ministry. So they were waiting for the sight to be returned to the blind. It was one of the key things they were waiting for on the Messiah. For somebody to be able to come and restore sight to a blind person, to set captives free, you know, prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, um, all these things were things they were waiting for. They should have seen this sign as a moment to stop and say, is this the Messiah we've been waiting for? But their skepticism didn't allow them to see that Jesus was really who they were waiting for. That's really hard because I feel like a lot of times today we get really close and on the edge between skepticism, kind of having a, a heart that leans towards cynicism. And we start to question the validity of the things that we see, we start to ask, is, is all this good, the things that the church is doing and how we're integrating into the community and sharing the gospel? And before long, we find ourselves kind of finding a group of people who help us see things as completely different than they seem to us in the moment. We start to build a skeptical heart. We start to build a cynical heart. And then before long, we're starting to see the church as the enemy and Christians as the enemy. And Listen, the church has done a lot of stupid stuff, and there's a lot of things we should call out as terrible. Absolutely, 100%. Plenty of things that are easy for us to point out. But 
to have a cynical heart, to have a skeptical heart, it puts us in a situation where we can't see what God is doing. We can't, you know, we're blind, if I can use that language, to what God's doing all around us. And we let that cynicism and we let that skepticism start to change us. That's definitely where these uh, Pharisees were, these leaders were. They're like, we've seen this before. We can't believe it. There's no way. There's some trick here. You know, this is not, of course, the Messiah would have healed somebody who was blind because, of course, we're waiting for that. So we can't trust it because, obviously, it's too, it's too right on the money. So I'm going to go back to the verses there. He said, then they, they turned again to the blind man. So, of course, where would they go to understand what's going on? The guy who's unschooled, who has no theological training. They're like, hey, you solve this for us, blind guy. What, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, I think it's pretty clear. He's a prophet. We've been waiting for this. Aren't you guys paying attention? Like, he calls him a prophet and says, this is the guy we've been waiting for. He restored my eyesight. We've been waiting for somebody to come and open the eyes of the blind. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Here we go. I am sorry. One of these days I'll be able to breathe. So they sent for the man's parents to verify that it really is the guy that was sitting at the gate. I, again, think this is so hysterical that people don't recognize him. Like, he's been sitting by that gate every day for his entire life. We don't know how old he is, but we know he's of age. So he's at least 13, probably older than that. So every day, people have streamed into the temple, and they've walked right by this guy. And no one's looked him in the face and seen what he looks like. No one can vouch for him and say, this is the guy who was sitting by the temple gate. The amount of compassion that people have for the people who are sitting by the gate is obviously zero. The fact that Jesus stops and shows this man compassion shows you what Jesus' concepts are and what he was thinking. So they bring the parents in. He says, is this your son, they asked. It is the one, sorry, is this your son, they asked. Is it the one that you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? They put his parents on the spot. Now, we don't know the relationship he had with his parents, but could have been awkward, right? One of them, obviously, in the eyes of the Jews, sinned and created this problem. It sounds like the parents had been blaming him for it for his entire life. Because you're going to see with their response here what they decide to do. It says, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So they immediately distance themselves from the man born blind just to say, like, look, ask him. Talk to him about it. I, we, don't, we don't know. We don't really hang out with Todd anymore. We're not really connected with Todd. We, like, we kind of cut him off, and we'd rather people assume it was his sin that caused this problem and not ours. That's essentially what's been going on. And we talked about the craziness of how the Jews processed sin and suffering back then. They looked at the idea that it was possible for a baby to sin in the womb and create a situation where they would be blind based on their own sin in the womb. It was based on how many times they kicked their mom. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Some of you guys are like, well, my kid would have been doomed. There you go. Who uh, said, my, my kid would have been doomed, spent the entire time in the womb kicking me the whole time. Right? Uh, anyone, moms, have one of those kids? Yeah, you probably would. That was essentially what was happening in, in Jerusalem at that point. They were saying, well, something created this situation. It must have been him in the womb sinning against his mother. And they were okay to sell out the guy 
and to let, let him be on his own and let people assume it was his sin. <clears throat> and again, here's why they decide to do that. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So they had already threatened them and said, listen, if you say that Jesus did this, the one thing that you can uh, bank on is the idea that you'll be cut off from the rest of the community. Now, I think we think a little differently about that today. If you were, for instance, in unrepentant sin, and you're a member of this church, we would come and have a conversation with you about some sin that you have in your life, and we would challenge you to correct that sin and change the way that you live. And there was a whole process on how to restore people and how to walk people through difficult moments. And there have been moments, right, where, you know, I've had conversations with people and it was touch or go, whether they were going to allow Jesus to be in charge of their life or whether they were going to continue to make selfish choices that hurt other people. But if I were to send you away from this church you probably drive by like 10 other churches on the way here that are probably okay. Right? That we don't understand what it means to be sent away from the community. If you were to send out of the synagogue at that point in time, you were completely cut off and ostracized. In fact, the Jews had layers of how long they would send you away. First, they would send you away for a few days. You'd have to not come around the synagogue for a few days. Then for a few months... And then they would do like an all-out, you're cut off from the rest of the synagogue. And the original language here tells us that these uh, leaders were not cutting corners and were not messing around. They were just saying, you get immediately thrown out of the synagogue. So don't, for a second, vouch for Jesus. Now listen, vouching for Jesus can get you in trouble. That's still true. It can get you tossed out sometimes. That's still true. It can make you look weird sometimes. We had a birthday party uh, yesterday for my daughter, and we had invited some neighbors. And they have kids that are exactly the same age as our kids and going to the same grades. It's kind of nice that we'll send our kids to school next year, and they'll have friends already. It's going to be awesome. So we invited the little girl to come to the birthday party, and mom sh shows up. She comes to the birthday party, and she's asking us questions, and um, I know I've shared a little bit about how we ended up in the house that we ended up, but it's a, like amazing Jesus story. Like it's, uh, if I, I'll tell you the whole thing at some point. It's just incredible how God kind of blessed us with the house we have, and we've been able to use it for ministry. It's been amazing. Um, and so I was explaining to her that the former owners <coughs> had decided not to pursue the most amount of money they could get out of the house, but had decided to pursue the idea that there would be somebody else who would come into the house after them who would love Jesus and try to continue to reach people for Christ. Now, just think about how crazy that sounds to a person. In fact, she looked at me and she said, well, geez, if I had known they needed me to convert to some sort of religion, I would have definitely converted so I could have bought the house. Right? It sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, that, that idea, that concept, it sounds nuts. The idea that somebody wouldn't, wouldn't go for all the money they could possibly get out of the house, but would choose to sell it to somebody based on what good they might do for the kingdom of God moving forward in that, in that place. You know, and as the former owner shared with us, like, hey, we tore out every floorboard in this house, and we wrote scripture all over the subfloor, and then we put a brand new floor in. We tore out every door frame, and we wrote scripture over every door frame. We designed this house to be... A, uh, you know, a, a place where Jesus was worshipped and where people could come and feel safe and 
we don't know anybody else who would do the same kind of work that we were doing. And so we want to sell it to you. And we just made our best offer, and they accepted it. I mean, it's a crazy, amazing story. We'd been looking for a house for over a year. Um, and so when I told her that, she looked at me like I was nuts. Like I had three heads. Like there was something significantly wrong with the entire situation. She actually was like, can they do that? And I was like, um, I'm pretty sure somebody can sell to whoever they want. And I go, then I was like, is that legal? <laughs> like, <laughs> so don't tell anyone. Um, but when we, when we proclaim Jesus, there's going to be moments where we look stupid, where we get thrown out. You know, it's not going to always work out for us to say, hey, we want to stay out of this fray. There are going to be moments where we have to stand up and say, I'm a believer in Christ. This is what guides me. These are my values. And that might make us look nuts. And that might mean that we get kicked out. And that's okay. Because these people were not willing to get kicked out, not for their son and not for Jesus. I mean, it's amazing to me that they, they still at this point would have been, you know, unable to stand up and, and make a statement about what had just happened. It must have been this incredibly amazing, overwhelming thing, and they couldn't even stand up and say this had anything to do with Christ. So they said, he, this is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him, verse 23. A second time, they summoned the man who was blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a, we know there's something up with this whole thing. Please, just come clean and give glory to God and throw Jesus under the bus. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Can't argue with that. The simplest testimonies are sometimes the best ways to share Jesus because you can't argue with them. You know, when, when I look back at my history and I think about, you know, my grandfather um, was abusive and he's now gone. He was abusive and he drank way too much. I would have said he was a functional alcoholic. And all the way into his 60s, this was the the reality for our entire family. My dad grew up in a situation where his dad was pretty brutal. My grandma divorced him, and my dad kind of always had this chip on his shoulder about his, his dad, right? And when I came into the picture as a grandkid, my grandfather had accepted Jesus and had changed his ways. So I only knew him as like a totally transformed person. He was gentle, and he was kind, and he was loving to me, my brother, the rest of our family, right? But it didn't necessarily change the history that my dad had had with him. And I look at my, my own dad. He was struggling through that when I was a younger child. And, you know, there was a lot of stress on our entire family, and he drank too much. And there was a time where I remember him and my mom fighting so, so aggressively that he basically put his fist through the bathroom door with my mom cowering on the other side of the door. Like, I know what was going through his head in that moment was like, I am turning into my dad, right? And then he accepted Jesus. And watch my dad's entire life turn around. Now one of the most gentle, wise, incredible people that you've ever met. Right? I have no doubt if I hadn't accepted Jesus when I did, that I would be a rage monster, probably drinking too much, probably, you know, probably violent in some way. I know that would have been the situation that I've been in. Sometimes the simplest testimony is the most significant one. For me to say... I avoided the same trap that my grandfather 
was in until he was 60, until my dad was in until he was in his mid-30s. You know, and I watched both of them come out and know Jesus, and I've known Jesus my whole life. Now my kids have never felt that same amount of fear that I felt the day I watched my dad punch his fist through a door. Right? To, to say that that's the testimony of my life, that Jesus changed my life, the, the future situation that was going to happen in my life, that, that testimony is so powerful. You can't step back and say that that's not the most powerful thing because no one can argue with you that that testimony is your reality. When you say, Jesus changed my life, I used to be like this, and now my life is like this, there's no theological test. <clears throat> you don't have to back it up with a hundred different verse, verses. It doesn't have to be perfectly theologically accurate. It's your experience. No one needs to argue with your experience. But for you to stand there and say, this is what my life was like, and then I met Christ, and now here's what my life is like, that is an amazing opportunity for you to share Jesus in a way that no one can argue with you. You don't have to be the expert of the entire Bible. You don't have to answer every single one of their questions. You just have to say, my life was like this, and then I met Jesus, and now it's like this. This guy, his one-sentence testimony is unbelievable. I used to be blind, and then I met Jesus, and now I see. That, that's the whole thing. Jesus can do that. That's his whole testimony. Don't discount how important your one-sentence testimony can be to other people. It's incredibly powerful. And there's a whole lot more to the story, but your very quick, very easy to share testimony, it can be so <coughs> powerful. Sorry. Ruben, get on that mute button, buddy. Just come on. You gotta, you gotta read my mind when it's coming. <sighs> he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. This is the man still talking. He says, I was blind, now I see. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? This guy is the man, right? Todd is actually really funny, man. Um, I think, by the way, some of us who have been in those cynical moments, those skeptical moments, those painful moments, we come out the other side um, can't believe other people don't see the same truth that we see, right? And it's just ridiculous to us. Like, the idea that somebody else would use uh, his physical ailment to say that God's not good when he's standing there telling them that Jesus is good, right? Like, it's just incredible. He says, do you guys want to become his disciples too? Now, this was kind of a bad way to go, but I think he just knew he was, there's no way he was going to qualify. He just kind of knew, okay, I'm going to go the Jesus route. And it's Whatever comes along with that is fine. It's better than where I was before. I was already an outcast. Now I can be an outcast and I can be on Jesus' team. I mean, what a beautiful way to look at things. I hope we all see ourselves as spiritual outcasts in some way. Right? We're on Jesus' team and we don't have to worry about what the rest of the world has to say. They, then it says they hurled insults at him. These are very godly people. Right? They hurled insults at him. They said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now this is remarkable. You don't even know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Like, I can tell you where he came from. It's from heaven. He did something nobody else can do, the thing we've been waiting to see. He says, we know God does not listen to sinners. That's a theological statement. All of a sudden, Todd is bringing the heat. His sermon is like a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. 
Todd's like, hey, I don't know. I was blind and now I can see. And so as far as I'm concerned, the only one who can restore sight to blind people is the guy we've been waiting for. I think you guys should open your eyes and take a look. He listens to the godly person who does his will. That is like, that is like a sermon, right? Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind, verse 32. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, which goes right back to Jesus' teaching. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Stay connected to the vine. Stay connected to Christ. Apart from him, you can do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And that's how they handle everything. They just throw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked Tell me so that I might believe in him. And you ask this question, why the hesitation here? But you have to think he's never seen Jesus' face. He's trying to figure out, is this the guy who healed me? He's listening to his voice. He probably recognizes his voice, but he's trying to ask the question, is this the guy who rubbed the mud on my eyes? Like, I don't, I don't know what he looks like. Jesus said, you have now seen him. Beautiful. In fact, he is the one who's speaking with you. Can't you hear my voice, buddy? You know what it sounds like. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And that word for worship in the Greek is the idea to make yourself low, to fall down on your face. So imagine this man falling down on his face in front of a crowd full of people. He knows exactly what to do. You know, I think so many times we act like this is really hard, what to do when we enter into Jesus' presence. It's not hard. Make yourself low. Fall on your face. Beg for his forgiveness. Ask him to be part of your life. You know, he doesn't withhold himself from anyone who seeks after him without that skeptical, cynical heart. He withholds himself from people who seek after him with an agenda or people who are skeptical or cynical and never open to the idea of who he is. Right? He doesn't withhold himself from those of us who pursue. That would be a great name for a church. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were there heard him saying this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus compares the physical blindness and the spiritual blindness. And he says, it's, There's a, two different kinds of blindness here. And those of you who think you've got it all figured out, you're blind. And those of you who know you don't have it figured out, who fall on your face in front of Christ, you're the ones who do have it figured out. Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see... Your guilt remains. And Jesus compares the spiritual sight and the physical sight that was restored to this man. And the great part about this is that Todd got both spiritual sight and physical sight. Right? The spiritual sight that we see in his life showed itself in a couple ways. So you get asked the question, how do I know that I know? How do I know that I'm actually seeing this? Because the problem with spiritual blindness is that you're blind to your blindness. The problem with spiritual blindness is thinking you have it all figured out, but you don't have it all figured out. Is thinking that you are good, but you aren't good. Right? That's, that's a major problem. Jesus says there will be people in heaven who walk up to the gate and say, hey, Jesus, how you doing? And he'll say, I don't know who you are. That's a real thing. There will be people who say, we healed in your name. We, we preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he'll go, I don't know you. That's a real thing. Because there are spiritually blind people who are blind to their blindness. So how do you know? How do you know? You're not blind. Well, this man exhibited just a few things I want to point out real quick, and we're going to close. Spiritual sight leads to radical obedience. 
gets the mud put on his face, and he doesn't whine, he doesn't complain, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, what are you doing? You're making the situation worse. He goes and he washes and he comes back seeing. Spiritual sight leads to radical obedience. If there's a place in your life where you're not willing to be obedient, you have to ask the question, do I really understand what God is doing? Can I actually see what God is doing? Second one, spiritual sight leads to boldness. That simple testimony given and that simple little message that he gave was bold and was given to, uh, in such a way that people would have been drawn into a relationship with Jesus and he wasn't an expert and he hadn't practiced it and he hadn't taken a class on how to share your faith and he hadn't read a book on five ways to share your faith and he hadn't done anything to prepare. It was just the natural outflow of someone who's been restored, who's gotten their spiritual sight and now they can see and share. <clears throat> and lastly, spiritual sight leads to complete surrender. It wasn't partial surrender. He didn't, you know, he didn't do this when he saw Jesus. He didn't look into his eyes. He didn't look down because he was feeling bad about himself. He put himself on his face. He made himself low. He surrendered completely to the power of who Jesus is. Right? You're asking yourself, spiritual sight, do I have it? Are you radically obedient to what Jesus is calling you to, even when it doesn't make sense to you? Are, are you bold for Christ? Are you willing to share the story that you have about who Jesus is in your life? Are you in complete surrender to what he's called you to do? Not partial, not holding back certain areas, saying, hey, you can be in charge of everything, but not my finances. You can be in charge of everything, but I'm not going to serve. You can be in charge of everything, but I don't want community. You can be in charge of everything, but I'm not giving you this area of my life because I need that to survive. All of those things can turn into idols real fast. Complete surrender is what Jesus wants. That is what spiritual sight looks like. And the problem with spiritual blindness is we're blind to our own blindness. God has called us to be radically transformed and to boldly share that message with other people. This is what he calls us to do. Let me pray for us as we close our time today. Jesus, I just pray again that you would make us spiritually aware, not unaware of ourselves, not blind to our blindness, God, but that we would continually be looking for areas of our life to surrender, to be bold in God, to, to make you the Lord of. God, would you use us in incredible ways to reach the neighbors and friends, coworkers, family, people around us who don't know you, God, would you just... Let our simple testimony make the difference in their lives. God, that we don't have to be experts. We don't have to know every single verse in the entire Bible, God, but that we can just share what you've done in our lives in a meaningful way, in a bold way, in a powerful way. Help us to make ourselves low in front of you, to bring ourselves low in front of you. We thank you that you don't give up on us that you use every moment in our lives for our own good, that you redeem every single thing that we've gone through. Every painful moment that we have, that we go through, God, is a chance for you to redeem. God, sometimes it is hard for us to see that in the moment, but would you just give us perspective to know that you care about us, that you love us, that you are with us through those moments, and that you will definitely redeem those things in the future. We love you. We trust you, God. Would you use us in Jesus' name? Amen.